If you're selling products online, then you probably know how tough it can be to get your orders out the door quickly, especially during the holiday season. That's why you need ShipStation.com. It's the fast and easy way to manage and ship your holiday orders all from one place. If you sell on Amazon, eBay, or Magento 2, or even your own website, then you need ShipStation. ShipStation brings all your orders into one place, making them really easy to manage from any device, even your mobile phone. Then you can use ShipStation to create shipping labels for all the top carriers, including Australia Post and Sendal. With ShipStation, you can ship more in less time with the best rates available. It's no surprise that ShipStation is a popular choice of online sellers across Australia. As a felon listener, you can try ShipStation free for 30 days, plus get a special bonus when you use the promo code FTC. To get this special offer, just visit ShipStation.com Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in FTC. That's ShipStation.com. Then enter promo code FTC. ShipStation.com. Make ship happen. This episode of Felon may contain disturbing content, including descriptions of violence and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. What's wrong, guys? The town of Nowra is about a two-hour drive south along the coastline from Sydney. The township itself is located on the Shoalhaven River and is only about a 20-minute drive from the coast, making it a popular destination for fishing, swimming and surfing. In 2006, the population of Nowra, combined with its neighbouring twin town of Bombardary, was just shy of 28,000 people. Not so small that everyone would know each other, but small enough that in that same year, the details of two violent murders would send shockwaves through an otherwise peaceful community. On the 29th of January, 2006, Peter Dalton and his wife were cycling along a track through the Tomorong State Forest, about 20 kilometers from the township of Nowra. During their ride, they had noticed a burning smell that grew stronger and stronger. As they drew nearer to a clearing in the forest, they could see the source of the smoke. The flames had died down but two barrels were smouldering, and black smoke rose from within them. Faced with the risk of a potential bushfire, the couple quickly alerted the fire brigade, and they made their way to the scene. Fire service captain Craig Beaumont was the first to examine the contents of the barrels to determine the source of the fire. He recalled that there was a funny smell as he made his way towards the barrels for a closer inspection. There would be little that could prepare him for what he was about to find inside, and with this discovery... He quickly alerted police. Superintendent Kyle Stewart was one of the first to attend and he described the contents of the barrels as a horrific scene. Inside both was the burnt remains 
of two human bodies. As horrific as the scene would be for police, the discovery of the barrels and the contents was not a surprise to them, and they already had suspects in custody. The surrounding area of Nowra is mainly farmland and state forests, and the region has a number of thriving dairy farms, wineries and vineyards. With the access to open farm spaces, Nowra is also home to many horse enthusiasts, and within the community there is the Shire Horse Society of Australia. Among those involved in this society were husband and wife Greg Hoser and Catherine Mackay. Greg, Catherine and their 10-year-old son Damon resided on a rural property about 5 minutes drive out of Nowra, in an area known as Nowra Hill. It was on this property, along Albatross Road, that they ran a horse stud business under the name of Champagne Shires. The couple who shared a love for horses, bred, trained and adjusted horses here. Locals of the area who owned horses but didn't have space to keep them would often use the adjustment services of Champagne Shires. It allowed them to keep horses that they otherwise wouldn't be able to by paying an ongoing fee to lodge them with Greg and Catherine. From an early age, Catherine had a passion for horses and in her youth, she was a member of a pony club. As she grew older, this interest remained, but she soon became caught up in her career as a nurse. When Greg took a redundancy package from the Sydney Water Board, the couple used the funds as an opportunity to relocate to the country and set up Champagne Shires. The couple were well known and respected within the community of Nowra and were regular contributors and volunteers to a range of community groups. Among these were the Shoalhaven State Emergency Services, Balambi Surf Life Saving Club, the Nowra Show Society, the YWCA, the Shire Horse Society of Australia, and the Shoalhaven Hospital, where Catherine worked as a nurse. Kim Snibson lived about a minute drive from Champagne Shires at a property on Calamia Street in Nowra Hill. Kim owned horses and adjusted them with Greg and Catherine and would visit the property regularly to see them. With these frequent visits, she came to know Greg and Catherine well and would even volunteer her time to assist them with chores around the farm. While on the surface, the relationship Kim had with Greg and Catherine seemed pleasant enough, Kim's financial issues would soon cause a fracture between them. Kim had fallen behind on payments for boarding her horses. Greg and Catherine had shown leniency and offered her time to come up with the funds. But Kim had contested the amount on the grounds that she had performed a range of work around the farm and thought that this should be taken into account. Feeling hard done by, she had refused to pay and the issue snowballed into a long-running dispute. Kim had moved to Nowra Hill from Sydney with her husband Paul and their two daughters in 2001. They had initially moved to a property on Calamia Street, but in early 2003, they relocated to an A-frame house on the same street following Kim's inheritance of a home. During their time in Nowra Hill, Kim and her husband's marriage started to deteriorate and the two went their separate ways in December of 2005. Paul, who was in the army, took a posting in Wodonga and left with his two daughters. Kim also made plans to vacate the family home and departed Nowra to spend about a month in Toowoomba with a man she was having an affair with and then around two weeks in New Zealand to spend time with her parents before making her way to Wodonga in a last ditch attempt to repair her marriage with Paul. Part of her arrangements for leaving Nowra involved renting her home to a friend she had made while living in the area. She had struck a deal with neighbour Stacy Lee Caton and agreed to rent him the home for $50 a week with the condition that he would look after it and take care of her animals. Kim had met Stacy while he was living in a caravan at the rear of his sister and brother-in-law's home next door to the Stibson family on Calamia Street. The two soon became friends 
and began socializing regularly. In 2006, Stacy Lee Caton was 29 years old. He had grown up in a family of Jehovah's Witnesses, but he had rebelled against the faith while in his early teens. This ultimately led to him leaving the family home at the age of 14 to live with his sister on the south coast, where he started working as a laborer. As time passed, he found himself living back in the family home again, but there was continued friction between him and his parents, and again he moved out. This time it was with friends in the western suburbs of Sydney, in the area of Penrith. In 1996, Stacy purchased a motorbike, but within only days of the purchase, he was involved in a serious accident. Neither he or the passenger he was carrying at the time were wearing helmets. Stacy sustained severe injuries, including a depressed fracture to the frontal skull and fractures to both his arms and legs. His best friend, who was riding as a passenger, died as a result of his injuries. Stacy's injuries affected him for the remainder of his life, and this, coupled with the guilt of causing the death of his best mate, led to severe headaches, mood swings, and depression. This soon spiraled into heavy drug use and a succession of criminal activities and charges. After a few short-term stints in prison, he moved to Nara Hill to live in the caravan behind the home of his sister. It was here that he would meet and befriend Kim Snibson. Another local to Nara Hill that Kim had become acquainted with soon after moving there was a man named Andrew Flencher. Kim had met Andrew and his partner Darlene Cowan when Kim's daughter had become friends with Darlene's daughter. Kim's daughter would often stay with Andrew and Darlene and Darlene's daughter would often stay at the Snibson residence. Kim had become familiar with Andrew and Darlene, and they would socialize and chat often. In 2006, Andrew Flencher was 31 years old. Andrew was born in Canberra, but moved to the Nowra area when he was 12 years old. After attending high school in Nowra and completing his school certificate, he left school in year 10 because his girlfriend at the time fell pregnant. Andrew and his girlfriend would have two more children before going their separate ways. Andrew met Darlene, who already had a daughter from a previous relationship, and the couple had a son together. Despite a shoulder injury that cut short a promising football career, Andrew was a hard worker and made his way through the ranks of a construction business to become a foreman within the company. But even with the success, his life at the time had taken a turn for the worst, and he had been consuming large amounts of alcohol and prescription pain medication to mask the pain associated with his prior injuries. This had also taken a significant toll on his mental state. On the 29th of January, 2006, Peter Dalton and his wife were cycling along a track through the Tomorong State Forest. During their ride, they had noticed a burning smell that grew stronger and stronger. As they drew near to a clearing in the forest, they could see the source of the smoke. The flames had died down, but the barrels were smoldering and black smoke rose from within them. At 2.30am on Sunday the 29th of January, Stacy Lee Caton arrived at the Nowra Police Station with news that he had seen a couple tied up at a property in Nowra Hill. He shared his concern that he was afraid that they might come to harm. Stacy was formally interviewed and further inquiries by police had led him to discover that it was Greg Hoser and Catherine Mackay who Stacy had seen tied up. By this stage, police were aware that Greg and Catherine were missing and their 10-year-old son had been in the care of relatives since the evening prior. After extensive interviews with Stacy, he shared with police those responsible for holding Greg and Catherine captive were Kim Stibson and Andrew Flencher. He also elaborated that not only had they been tied up, but they had been murdered at their hands. Throughout the early morning hours spent with police, he denied any involvement in the events of the evening. At 7.30am, Stacy led police to the residence 
where he was currently living, the home he was renting from Kim Snibson. At 8.10am, Kim arrived at the property, where she was arrested by the authorities who were attending the scene. She declined to be interviewed and remained in custody. Soon after Kim's arrest, Andrew Flentjar contacted police. He claimed he had seen a news flash on TV regarding the discovery of the bodies in the barrels. Upon hearing this news, he had become concerned about two objects he had discovered. He informed authorities that Kim Stibson had recently left two barrel lids on his property. Despite being implicated by Stacy, Andrew denied any involvement in restraining or harming anyone. His claim was that he hadn't left the house at all on the day in question. This was a claim that was also backed up by his partner. Police obtained a search warrant and performed a thorough examination of Andrew and Darlene's property. During this search, they would locate a key piece of evidence. It was a handbag with a DNA profile matching that of Catherine Mackay. With the alleged offenders now in custody, detectives would begin to scour for evidence that would assist in making a case against them. On the day of Kim's arrest, neighbors shared with police that they had heard loud music and noises coming from what they assumed to be a party at her home on the night in question. Around 5.45pm on the evening of the 28th of January, witnesses also observed Kim and another man who would later be identified as Andrew Flencher leaving Champagne Shires in Kim's car. At 5.55pm, Kim was filmed on CCTV purchasing bleach and Domestos from the Caltech service station in South Nowra. At 9.13pm, Stacy was filmed on CCTV exiting Kim's car at the same service station and purchasing fuel in two petrol cans, both of which were found in Kim's car on the day of her arrest. A fingerprint lifted from one can was identified as belonging to Stacy. Inside Kim's car was a DNA profile consistent with that of Stacy's on the front passenger seat. An inspection of Kim's car and property revealed that traces of green paint similar to that on the barrels were found in Kim's vehicle and also on a trolley located on Kim's property. Following the discovery of the barrels, Greg's four-wheel drive was found burnt out on Braidwood Road some 13 kilometers from Kim's home. Both this area and the area where the barrels were found were well known to Kim as she had used both places to train her dogs. The most damning of all the evidence was that the traces of rope found around the remains of Greg's wrists, brown tape found around his ankles and wire found around his neck matched that of the same items located at Kim's property. Andrew Flencher, who had claimed to be at home all day, was recorded by authorities with a listening device installed in his home as saying, Yeah, I felt a little bit responsible for what happened to these people, but I didn't kill them. But they are rock spiders. I didn't mind fucking putting them on the ground and holding them down while they tied them up, because they were rock spiders. The term rock spiders, meaning pedophiles. These comments, while not taken as an admission of responsibility for their deaths, was enough to determine that he was in fact on the premises when the event took place. Blankets belonging to Kim were also located in Andrew and Darlene's home by police, indicating that Kim had spent the night there following the incident. With the various statements and evidence available to them, the following timeline of events was established. The incident had occurred on Saturday the 28th of January, 2006, but around a year prior to this date, Kim had approached Stacy with a request of his assistance to, in her words, belt up a couple. Stacy was told by Kim that she had been drugged and while in this state she had been filmed by the couple while they performed sexual acts on her. According to Kim she needed help to get back at them for taking advantage of her. She also told Stacy that part of this plan of revenge was to involve forcing the couple to sign over their property to her. Kim had also requested the assistance of her friend Andrew Flencher, 
Around five months prior to the day of the 28th, Andrew and his partner Darlene had also been informed about the same couple and both were sickened by what Kim had revealed about them. Andrew had also agreed to assist in the plan of revenge. On the morning of the 28th, Kim drove her vehicle, a green Commodore station wagon, from Wodonga to Nowra. She had her two daughters with her. She dropped her younger daughter off at the home of Andrew Flintjar and she was to stay there with Andrew's partner Darlene and her children. Her older daughter was dropped off at another friend's house in Nowra. That afternoon, she drove to the home that she owned in Calamia Street, where she met up with Stacy, who had been at the property all day. Following a brief exchange of pleasantries, Kim referred to their previous conversation about the couple that had filmed her. She went on to state, we're going to bash them and tie them up and get them to sign over things from their property. Following this conversation, she left the house. Before returning shortly with Andrew Flencher, this would be the first time that Stacy and Andrew had met. It was here that Kim told them that it was now time for payback against the couple. At 4.59pm, Kim called Greg Hose's mobile phone from her own. Stacy Lee Caton recalled that the brief conversation the two had seemed to have been mainly about horses. A short time after this call, Greg arrived at Kim's property in his Hilux four-wheel drive. As he made his way inside the home, Kim and the two men were waiting for him. Andrew was wearing a beanie, pulled over his face, with eye holes cut out to make it into a makeshift balaclava. It was clear that this was not a social gathering. Before he could back out the door, Greg was struck by a large piece of wood and tackled to the ground. As he lay on the floor, reeling from the blow and pinned down by his attackers, he was tied up. During the assault, Greg pleaded with them and asked them why they were doing this. Andrew quickly replied that it was for touching little kids. It was at this moment that an inconsistency in Kim's story could have been revealed. Stacy had been told that the revenge had been motivated by the video of Kim being assaulted, but Andrew had been told by Kim that the same couple had molested one of Kim's daughters while she was being babysat by them and they'd filmed it and that this was the contents of the video in question. In the heat of the moment, this inconsistent detail was either missed or ignored by Stacy, and the attack continued to unfold. Greg was then hogtied by Andrew with his hands behind his back and his legs pulled up behind him. Kim then gagged him by forcing a sock in his mouth and covering it with masking tape. Bound and gagged, Greg was dragged along the floor and into the bathroom. Helplessly, he waited to learn of his attacker's plans for him. At 5.26pm, Kim used her mobile phone to call Catherine Mackay. Catherine arrived at Kim's home soon after the call and just as Greg had been assaulted, Catherine too was set upon by the trio and she was tackled to the ground, hogtied and gag. She was then left lying bound on the floor in the kitchen. During the attack on Greg, a cut had opened above his eye and had resulted in blood dripping over the floor. Kim, accompanied by Andrew, left the premises to collect bleach to clean the traces of blood. While they were doing so, they stopped by Champagne Shires to drop off Catherine's car. During the time that Kim and Andrew were away, Greg managed to break free from his ties, but as he attempted to make an escape, he was punched in the head by Stacy and again subdued and tied up. Kim and Andrew soon returned from their trip. They were carrying with them a container of bleach, which was used to clean up the drops of blood. In Kim's car were two items that she had collected from Champagne Shires. In the back of her station wagon were two 44-gallon steel barrels. With the collection of the barrels, it seemed that now, Greg and Catherine's fate was sealed, and the violence of the evening would soon escalate. According to both Andrew and Stacy. Kim picked up a roll of packing tape and made her way over to Catherine, who was still on the floor and still gagged with a sock and masking tape. With the roll of tape, 
Kim repeated to wrap layer after layer over Catherine's nose and around her head. With each layer, Catherine, who was still conscious at the time, struggled for air. With each layer, breathing became impossible and eventually she suffocated. Andrew Flintjar and Stacy Lee Caton stood by, silently watching. Kim then collected a length of electrical fence wire and with it, she formed a makeshift noose. This noose was placed over Greg's head and then tightened around his neck. While standing on his back, Kim heaved the noose upwards until Greg, like Catherine, lay lifeless on the floor. The bodies of Greg and Catherine were pushed along the ground and into the barrels. Once both bodies were packed inside, lids were placed on the barrels and rope was tied around them to hold them securely in place. Once darkness had fallen, the barrels were loaded into the back of Kim's station wagon and transported to the Tomorong State Forest, around 20 kilometers away. Here they were set alight with fuel that had been purchased at the Caltech service station along the way. Greg Hose's four-wheel drive was driven out to a remote area on Braidwood Road, where it too was set alight. Following this brutal attack, it would soon be revealed by thorough searches and interviews with Kim's husband that there was no video of Kim or of her daughter, and neither had been harmed in any way at the hands of Greg and Catherine. It seemed that the only source of friction between Kim and the couple was that there had been an ongoing dispute about money being owed. But this may not have been the only motive for Kim's plan for kidnapping the couple, as it was also made clear from the interactions Kim had with Andrew and Stacy in the lead up to that night that part of the plan involved Greg and Catherine signing over their property to her. Kim Snipson was born in New Zealand on the 30th of July, 1970. She was 35 at the time of the murders of Greg and Catherine. When she was five years old, she arrived in Australia with her parents and her younger brother. Upon arriving in Australia, Kim's family lived an itinerant lifestyle, moving from place to place as her father pursued employment opportunities before eventually settling in Sydney. The frequent moves caused a significant disruption to Kim's schooling and prevented her from maintaining meaningful friendships. Kim's relationship with her father was difficult, and as a consequence, she was asked to leave home when she was 15. Soon after leaving home, Kim was sexually assaulted by an adult male who was known to the family. Following this assault, she attempted to take her own life and was hospitalized. She briefly returned to her parents' home, but did not share with them that she had been assaulted. The assault upon her continued to plague her throughout her teens, and also into her adult life. Kim left school before completing year 10, and soon after this, she met her husband Paul. They were both married while she was still a teenager. Throughout Kim and Paul's marriage, there were several periods of separation. When they had relocated to Nowra Hill in 2001, their marriage had been under a significant strain for a number of years, and during this time, both were involved in a number of extramarital affairs. Due to this, Kim had been in an emotional turmoil, and once again found herself entertaining suicidal thoughts. Kim had found in Stacy and Andrew emotional and physical support during this time, and both seemed eager to come to her aid in what appeared to be a time of need. With a solid body of evidence, there was little doubt that Kim, Stacy, and Andrew had all played a role in the murder of Greg and Catherine. As the prospect of a lengthy prison sentence loomed over them, all three individuals tried to downplay their level of guilt in the couple's brutal demise. But through piecing together corroborating statements and matching them with the forensic evidence, it would soon be determined that Kim was the mastermind behind the killings, Stacy was a significant accomplice, and Andrew had played a somewhat lesser role. For her role 
in the aggravated kidnapping and murder of Greg Hoser and Catherine Mackay, Kim Snibson was sentenced to 32 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 24 years for his role in the detainment and murder of Greg and Catherine. Stacey Lee Caton received a sentence of 22 years with a non-parole period of 16 years and 6 months. Andrew Flentjar was found not guilty of murder but was charged and sentenced for the offence of aggravated kidnapping and received 10 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 7 years. The many tributes from family and friends painted a picture of Greg and Catherine being loving and kind parents who were involved in active community members and passionate contributors to many causes close to their hearts. It seemed that their only mistake was allowing Kim Snibson into their lives. During Kim's trial, a disturbing prelude to an already shocking story came to light. A number of witnesses testified that Kim's attempt of extortion by violent means was something that they had heard her speak of on a number of occasions prior to the fatal ambush of Greg and Catherine. In 1997, while living in Sydney, Kim confided in a young friend, Rebecca Williams, that she had a plan to murder an elderly man and have his property signed over to her. Hugh Yandel, a fellow serviceman of her husband Paul, gave evidence that in 2001 he received a phone call from Kim, during which she shared with him that her daughter had been molested by the son of a lady that Kim had worked for. She requested that Hugh beat her up badly enough that she would be put in hospital. Her motivation for the assault being that she believed the woman knew what her son was doing and allowed it to occur. Kim claimed that she had tried to report it to police, but they couldn't act due to a lack of evidence. Kevin MacDonald, another fellow serviceman of Paul, recounted a similar phone call that he received from Kim, in which she stated that her daughter had been sexually abused by a male neighbour and offered Kevin $50,000 to, in her words, help punish the guy. A longtime friend of Kim's, named Kim Webber, gave evidence that in 2001, Snibson had told her that her daughter had been molested by an old lady who had been looking after her. According to Kim Webber, Snibson said, I want her dead, and I want to get her for what she has done. Can you get me a gun? She then continued, First I want her deeds in her house. I'm going to tie her up in a chair to do it. I want a gun to her head while she's signing the deeds. After the job is done, I'll give you $30,000. At the time, Kim Webber disregarded her friend's talk of this, but in 2003, she inquired about the lady in question. Kim Snibson replied that she had died. The accounts of these witnesses and their interactions with Kim would paint an ominous picture of Kim's ongoing pattern of attempting to manipulate to gain assistance in the assault and extortion of various potential victims. When the Snibson family had first moved to Calamia Street, they had lived at another house prior to moving into their A-frame home. The original owner of this home was an elderly lady by the name of Judith Palinkas. Soon after moving to Nara Hill, Kim befriended Judith and the two bonded over their love of animals. Judith was a dog breeder and Kim would often assist her in the care of her dogs. In 2003, Judith's battle with cancer was taking its toll and on the 17th of April, her condition suddenly worsened. The following day, Judith passed away. Despite having many surviving relatives, the night prior to her death, Judith made a significant change to her will. The A-frame house on Calamia Street was left to Kim Snibson. It would be this same house where Greg Hoser and Catherine Mackay would be brutally murdered.
felon, true crime, the underbelly of the land down under.